Welcome to episode 47 of the J Bunny's Music Hub podcast. I'm your host, J Bunny. Well, guys, it's another Skype episode, another interview with a musician, somebody that I've wanted to talk to for a really, really long time, and I'm so glad to finally get him on the show. Uh, Rich Juswick, who was the, we find out, was the founder of the band Gemini Syndrome and is currently the guitarist in the band September Morning. Again, I was, it was so great to have him on the show. This one this one runs a little long, but Rich really goes deep on forming Gemini Syndrome and why he left and, and all that stuff. It's a, it's a great listen, and I hope you guys enjoy it. I'm not going to take up any more of your time because, like I said, this is a longer one. So without further ado, here's Rich. What's up, everybody? It's Jay Bunny. I am once again at home on Skype, once again drinking a fantastic beer from the Ghost Talk Brewery in Clifton, New Jersey. Joining me today is uh, Rich Joswick from the band, formerly of the band Gemini Syndrome, and currently in the band September Morning. How's it going, Rich? It's hot. The weather finally uh, caught up. I'm getting sunburned. <laughs> That's how I'm doing. <laughs> well, you know, it uh, seems like here in Jersey, it seems like it's kind of a, like it's warm, but it's kind of gloomy. I don't know if it's going to rain. I don't know what's going on, but it is, it's good that it's not like super cold. Like the weather's been fucking strange. Oh, it's funny. Like, um, I've been telling a few friends about this at home. Like when I'm on tour in different cities and the weather's ever been like crazy and weird for the season. Anyone I talk to that's from the city is always just like, Oh, that's typical Michigan or that's typical Illinois or Wisconsin or Minnesota. You know, like that everyone says like they think that their city or state is like the only place where it's crazy. And I've noticed that it's everywhere. So I just think the world, it's, it's all our ecosystems all messed up and everyone's got bipolar weather and it's mismatched. And you know, let's, uh, Save the planet. <laughs> yeah, we had a weird, like, we had a day earlier this month, it's May, and we had a day in early May where it was snowing. I was like, what the fuck's going on here? <laughs> we had a frost last week. Yeah, all my friends started making gardens about three weeks ago, and then they all freaked out and had to, like, pull things in or cover them because uh, we had a frost <laughs> in wow. May. <laughs> insanity so i first became aware of you in in 2013 when i first discovered gemini syndrome and we'll touch on that in a bit but first and foremost i just wanted to ask how old you were when you first started to play music i was 12 but i don't even know if i would consider that playing music that was like the beginning of i had an actual guitar and i intended to play music For, i'd say that that first year of me owning a guitar was just you know it was it looked really good in my bedroom and uh i i tried but it, was, it didn't really get anywhere until I was about late 13, early 14 years old. So I, I, I'd say that's probably the more real answer is about 14. I could actually play. Okay. And what bands were you in prior to Gemini Syndrome? Were there any bands that, that people might have known you from before that? Uh, yeah, I mean, my story is like is weird because typically the way it normally kind of goes is, you know, whenever someone starts playing an instrument, you know, they get into a band soon after and they're like, and then they're in a rotating door bands. Or if they're lucky, the one band just does really well. I, uh, I was in a band in high school for like two or three years. And then when I went to college, I was on the hunt for people to play with and can never find the right people, which is why I moved to LA. So there's like a huge gap of me like not playing like out at all that normally, you know, somebody would be doing. So when I moved to LA, um, the first band that I played in was a band called My Evolution. And I played bass and that was like 2008 into 2009. And when I was in that band, I was actually, I'd already been demoing the music ideas for Gemini Syndrome. But while I was in that band, I actually came up with the Gemini Syndrome name. And once I had that, then I had like a focus and I started like, you know, actually kind of building the, the blueprint. My Evolution those guys turned into Nihilectric. So okay. 
So uh, Micah, the drummer, and Mike, the guitar player, they were in My Evolution, and then they started Nye Electric. And then I started Gemini Syndrome officially in 2010. First show was June 7th, 2010. First rehearsals were like in February 2010. And then when I left that in 2014, I got asked to be in September morning, and I've been here ever since. So I don't have like a huge, long, long resume of bands. It's just kind of been like a grade school, junior high, high school, college, <laughs> you know, like one, but, you know, just keep, you know, going. Okay. I didn't realize until after you had left Gemini Syndrome that you were the band's founder. Can you tell me how you came up with the symbology that the band utilizes and how the initial band lineup came together? It's complicated, but I guess we got time, don't we? Um, <laughs> and I'll also say that uh, there's more information about like what I'm about to explain. Anything that I'm forgetting, there's more parts of it on my YouTube channel because I just started a few weeks ago uploading every single video file that I have, especially from that time, and it's a lot. Like I have video of like, every show we ever did, pretty much, stuff like that. And there's a lot of the first interviews in that first six months, interviews that no one's ever seen or heard for whatever reason. Like it, we did it and then didn't get posted or whatever. And it surprised me going through them because I started realizing uh, how much more information was in there that I forgot that I even shared. So go to, there's more stuff there. But the story is, oddly enough, I was working at the Hollywood Palladium, painting the offices, and in my brain, I was just like, I kept trying to think of something interesting and unique. And weirdly enough, Mike from um, My Evolution, My Electric, we would always talk about different things, and he would always mention people according to their sign and kind of go like, oh, that's their obvious Aquarius, or they act like a Libra or whatever. And uh, he and I had this conversation once about some girls we knew, and they were all Geminis, and they were all crazy. <laughs> and, we were, and we were like... It, it, and, and and so for some reason I was I replayed the conversation in my head and I was like it's kind of like a Gemini syndrome and I was like oh well that's kind of an interesting phrase and I realized like given what Gemini syndromes the f phrase is known for today that makes no sense but that is like the literal like reason for the the phrase going through my head and I, I'll admit it's kind of a negative version but um I was just like well there's something to that you know and um I remember going home and getting on the computer and going all right Gemini's part of the zodiac you know there's 12 months in the year and I just start combining all these ideas and different things and kind of going like well uh, since there's a zodiac there's the signs you know like for for capricorn and gemini and all that and i was like you know that's like greek and roman mythology and astrology type of stuff but then if you think about stuff like the pyramids and you know the mayans and the incans and hieroglyphics and all that and i was like it's all kind of related the symbology of, of things of, of communicating spiritually through these ideas and i started just kind of realizing there was like a, a universal thing that even though all these things technically on the surface were unrelated they all kind of came with a foundational place and that's i guess the positive version <laughs> i quickly discovered of how that name related to everything and that's why i knew i was onto something because i was like well gemini's duality i got a good reason and a dumb reason <laughs> for why this name exists <laughs> and uh and i just kind of like dug into it more and admittedly i'm not going to take claim that like i did everything especially in the visual parts I, brian did all the graphic design i gave him like template ideas you know like I, you know i'd had multiple conversations with him about the, the, I guess, like, if you want to think about it, the story Bible of, of what it was. And he was way better at Photoshop than I was. So, uh, and plus at that time, you know, it was like, I was trying to get everyone invested and I didn't want to just tell everyone what to do and act like I was the best at everything because I knew I wasn't. You know, I wanted everyone, as they got involved, to take their strengths and, like, you know, take a lead with it, you know, and, and be that role. My thing was mainly just, I had a blueprint and I could see the big picture and I was very organized, you know, and I could recognize the talents and 
each person. So when it all started, you know, I, my, I, I had been writing music demos, looking for a singer. I placed an ad on MySpace. That's how long ago this was. <laughs> and uh, Brian answered the ad on MySpace. And it was kind of funny because I knew of him because my ex-girlfriend used to date him like three or four or five years earlier. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, Oh, there's that dude I've heard about. Well, I guess you know, I'll respond. And obviously we have, have stuff in common. So we started talking and then I, I found out he's good at Photoshop and I tried, you know, throw him ideas. This was the end of 2008. I want to say like I met him officially and jammed with him in like November 2008. Couldn't find a singer to save my life. I mean, I there's like probably half a dozen people I talked to if they either flaked or just weren't good. And around like February 2009, Brian met Mike Salerno and he started playing in Mike's band at the time within the Eddie. They went on tour, and while they were on tour, Brian was talking to different people, and he would just send me a link and go, hey, check this person out there on a local band. They might be cool. And, and it was just kind of, you know, he was kind of out there looking outside of L.A., and I was in L.A. So that kind of just went on, and, you know, and things weren't really moving forward. He wasn't really committed. He was just kind of poking around and keeping in contact. I knew he was going to be off the tour. So in July of 2009, I scheduled studio time at NRG because for me, it was just kind of like, you know, I just got to do something to move forward. You know, I have to believe in these, the, the music that I've got and just make the best of it that I can. I don't have a big producer. I don't have even a singer yet, but I know that these song arrangements are strong. The music's cool. It has something to say. And if I can just get it past my initial demo stage, then maybe it might feel more real to people. And I mean, that, that actually worked. So we spent four days at NRG. Brian tracked drums. I actually paid him, you know, because I had to hire him to play drums. Because again, you know, it wasn't a band yet. And honestly, you know, he was just looking for paid gigs. So my only way to try to make sure he actually played drums was to offer him to pay him every day to play drums and pay for his food. It's just complete like work for hire session thing. And we did that. My friend Peter Avaduti engineered all the sessions. The drums came out sounding great. There was a really good vibe. So we took all my demo guitars and programming and put it over a rough mix of the drums and then that's what I shopped around to, to singers more like as, as I met people and I just kept hunting for a singer a few months down the road you know I start meeting more people around LA I meet some other people through Brian and through the you know just the, the high school the rock and roll high school I met Ivan Dominguez who was a bass player in the band Glass Pinata Glass Pinata was a band that Brian was in well it's, it's, it's confusing. Brian and Meeks from Cold Chamber started Pinata in like 2003. Brian left, and when he left, Meeks basically got like a new lineup and then called it Glass Pinata. And uh, Ivan was a bass player in that band. So I started talking to Ivan because I, you know, I still didn't have a band, and I was just trying to find people that would be interested in, in listening to music and be like, oh, you know, I might, I'd like to be in this band. Ivan was into it. Same thing. He would just start sending me ideas for different singers he knew of or whatever. And, you know, I'd research and maybe contact and send tracks and wait for a demo to come back and they'd flake or it'd be bad or whatever. And then uh, I remember, I want to say it was like, again, I think it was like November, but it was November 2009, a year later, after I'd met Brian, Ivan calls me and goes, hey, I know about this guy named Aaron. He used to play guitar at OTEP and I know him from some friends from MI. Musicians Institute. He's out of OTEP. I think he lives in Chicago, but he happens to be in town visiting right now because yeah, that's what I heard from my friends. So maybe you should try to find out how to get a hold of this guy and see maybe if he's interested. He's like, because I looked at his MySpace and there's links to his original band and he's got a really good voice. And I was like, all right. So I went on MySpace, found him. There was no way to contact him except to message him on MySpace and just hope that he actually read the message. He did, but like a week later or five days later, and he goes, oh, this is interesting. You know, I'm actually going back to Chicago like in two days or tomorrow, but I can come meet you and we can talk about it in person. We can check out the music. And so he came to my apartment in Hollywood and uh, and I just showed him these demos 
you know, uh, the demo guitars and programming over the drums Brian did. And he's like, oh, this is pretty cool. I'm going to go back to Chicago. Maybe put together some ideas, see if you're into it. I'm like, great. So I keep in contact with Aaron, but uh, he wasn't sending me anything. He just would send me maybe some lyrics here and there. And I assumed that, you know, being in all these bands and, and everything, that he'd have access to recording equipment, whether it was his or a friend's, you know, and he could easily just, or even his phone, and just sing, sing over the mic and send me a thing, you know, with the music playing in the background. I have something. He never would do it. So I was like, man, I don't know. Is this guy really going to come through? But again, my, my whole motto was just keep moving forward. So right. I scheduled studio time with Mikey Doling to do guitars because I'd heard some other friends were doing guitars at Mid-City Sound with Mikey. I stopped by, heard the, the tones and the ideas. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, I, the, the guitars can sound pretty good coming through here. So, I mean, really, the, the you know, Mikey was just kind of there. You know, at first, that was the idea. Like, I wasn't trying to work with Mikey Doling. I was just trying to go to a studio that the guitars, you know, the they had enough proper gear to make my guitar sound good, you know, because right. I because I didn't want to keep paying for energy because energy was expensive. So, but the deal was, you know, Mikey was there and everything. I was like, okay, well, I you know I know who he is and I respect him. He's done a lot, so sure, you know, I could use some constructive criticism and ideas. So, uh, right after Christmas, 2009, we went to Mid City Sound in Koreatown and did guitars with Mikey for a couple of days. And actually, I'll mention this also: everything that I'm saying is pretty much documented on video. All the the sessions from NRG, those four days, I have all the raw footage uploaded to my YouTube. And then there's also kind of compilation videos that were highlight reels I did of each day. And then same thing with Mid-City, like all the raw footage from each day is up there. You know, it's like sitting in the studio watching it all kind of unfold. So we did the guitars. He's just like, well, these are, you know, at first he, you know, he was just kind of like, what do you got? Oh, that's cool. That's cool. And then after like a song or two, he's kind of like, these are actually pretty cool. Who's your singer? And I'm like, I don't have a singer. I got a guy. I got a couple people I'm talking to, but I got a guy in Chicago. He used to play in OTEP as a guitar player. I think he's the best candidate, but I haven't heard anything from him, so I don't know. And he's supposed to move back here next year, but I don't know. He's like, oh, okay. He's like, well, I remember him. I actually toured with him. I'm like, oh, cool. So we did the guitars. I was kept in contact with Aaron, and uh, he kept just sending me little paragraphs of lyrics. I was like, well, these lyrics are cool, but I don't know what it is. And again, on Blind Faith, I was just like, I told Mikey, I was like, you know, by the time we were done with the guitars, there was a good vibe. And he's like, well, I'd like to help with the vocals whenever you go to record those. And I was like, all right. So then I talked to Aaron. Aaron was like, well, I planned on coming back to LA in late January, early February, but now the place I was going to stay at, I can't stay there. And he's like, and I don't have a job, and so I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I'm stuck in Chicago. And I said, you can live with me. Just, I mean, because the same thing happened with Brian. You know, when, when he first, right after he did the drums at NRG, he wasn't touring with, within the Eddy, and he was just kind of around, and he was like crashing into people's couches. And, you know, for me, I was just trying to make it all work, and I had an extra bedroom at the place I was staying, so Brian was there rent-free, because I was just trying to take anyone that wanted to be, that was kind of involved with what was going on, I was just like trying to make sure they didn't flake and go anywhere. So so he stayed with me, and then, you know, by the time we were done with guitars, Brian was definitely more invested in what was going on, and solved another problem. I just said, Aaron, Brian's in the one bedroom, but I have a loft bed and I just sold a bunch of gear and everything that was stored underneath it. So I'll sleep on top and then you can take an air mattress to sleep underneath me. And he's like, okay. So Aaron showed up, I want to say late January, early February, and we had all the studio time booked with Mikey. And he went in, he did the first song, I think it was Left of Me. And we all just looked at each other like, this is it. You know, me, Mikey, and Brian, we were just like, dude can sing. And he sounds good over this stuff. And, you know, so then at that point, Mikey was super excited. And then and you can watch the progression in the videos because in the guitar sessions, he wasn't doing much of the engineering. He was kind of like talking and playing guitar with me. By the time Aaron's there recording vocals, Mikey's like at the computer most of the time, engineering, producing, you know, like he, like he was really, really into it. So that's how Brian and Aaron got into it. So now if I backtrack, 
my friend Ivan, who told me about Aaron, was still kind of in the background, too. He lived in Riverside, like, I want to say, like, an hour away or 45 minutes away. And uh, since Brian was around me all the time, because I had him living with me, easy to communicate with him about plans and what was going. To, I was trying to do. And so when we did the studio time, I invited, like, we did guitars. I invited a lot of friends to stop by, you know, different people that ended up becoming very important in the progression, like photographers that I knew, models that I knew, and, you know, people that just were in the scene with me so they could all kind of feel like they were part of the story and and then and we could do things together and create stuff together so that was during the guitar time when we got to the vocal recording time in february 2010 we were still kind of like you know who's going to be the other guitar player is ivan really going to play bass you know we're not really sure because like i said ivan was still just you know and it's not his fault it, you know and i don't you know ivan's a great guy it's just circumstance of, of timing and, and details so for me with him when we had aaron tracking vocals i was like well if you really want to be a part of this you need to come to the studio and hang out and, and be a part of it and and see how this goes and he he just kept saying well i can't get off work i don't have time i don't have time so he didn't ever come to the, the sessions well brian kind of had a rolodex in his head of different people he had talked to and he's like well i know this guy that i just met in december we played a show with him he's this skinny Italian guy with a bunch of tattoos and he's pretty badass. I think it'd be cool to have him come by the studio and see what we're doing and see if he's interested. I was like, all right. I was like, I feel like, like it's kind of like going behind Ivan's back because Ivan's kind of quasi been around us, but you know, at the same time, he's not showing up at the studio. So AP comes by, and then he was totally into it, and he kind of just kind of kept coming back to the studio and hanging out. And again, you can see this all in my videos on YouTube, day by day. There's different people that start popping up at the studio, different guitar players. And basically, Brian just kept inviting different guitar players that he knew to come by and see what we were doing. So you'll see Meeks from Cold Chamber. He stops by. Adam, who goes by Docs, he's a tattoo artist, but he used to play in toys with Brian and um, Ivan from Five Finger. He stopped by, and then a few other people, but and then, then Mike Salerno, I think, was like the last one. He comes by, and we were tracking the vocals for Take This, and he, you know, he didn't, at the time, he didn't act like, like he was floored or anything, but he told me after the fact, when he officially joined the band, that, that basically once he heard the vocals on Take This and heard the track, he was just like sold. You know, so basically in this video, you can just watch this progression of people coming in and checking out what we're doing. And then, you know, I remember watching the videos and going, there's the first video I see with all five of us in a room together, you know, and by the time the vocal sessions were done, we pretty much were, you know, we're like, well, let's go jam. So this is all back because we basically recorded an album and it never played together. So <laughs> I even have the, the first rehearsal we ever did in the middle of those vocal sessions is up on my YouTube too. Uh, and there's us jamming the songs, you know, with no click, no tracks, no nothing, just raw, vibing it out together. And that's how it all started was right there. And, you know, I think March 2010, we all moved in together. Mike had a huge apartment in Sherman Oaks, three bedrooms, two bathrooms, 1,500 square feet, ridiculous. We all moved in and we just, you know, eat, sleep, breathe the idea of what Gemini Syndrome was, you know, we just started rehearsing every day. We started planning our first show for June 7th, 2010. And so March, April, May, June. So about three months, three and a half months straight. It was like photo shoots, rehearsals, discussions. I was programming lights. I was going and getting backdrops and banners created, risers created, like everything. And that's how it all started. See, I didn't know that Meigs from Cold Chamber was was involved. That would explain, I guess, why he's in the band now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because Brian's always, you know, they met back in 2003, and they've always stayed in touch. And, you know, Cole Chamber's not doing anything. Meigs was in a band called We Are The Riot. So when Gemini Syndrome started, we knew that that band was starting up. And again, on my YouTube, there's footage of their first show and other shows they played with us, and, and even a rehearsal of that band. But so, you know, just that click of all these 
bands hanging out, he was just always around. And now that, you know, he doesn't have a local band in L.A. and Cold Chamber's not doing anything, he's got time. Okay. So you left Gemini Syndrome in 2014, and, and that, that whole thing was kept quiet until 2015 when you finally released a statement about it. Can you tell me why you decided to leave the band? If you'll notice with me, I'm pretty long-winded, I guess, because I always want to, like, explain as much of the details as possible, and, you know, and I remember a lot. So it's not as simple as, like, I just left because I didn't want to be there. It was a couple year ramping up, you know, so if the band started in 2010 and we had all this hope, you know, for what could happen, we almost got signed to Warner Brothers two months after our first show, but Tom Wally got fired. He was the president of Warner Brothers, so then that got nixed. And then we started doing stuff on our own. And so, again, we still had this, like, camaraderie of, like, of hope because we just kind of came out the gate blazing. So 2010 into 2011, you know, it was still just, like, grind, grind, grind and try to make it work. But plus for me, you know, everything that the band had, well, 99% of what the band had, the money for it came through me. I was paying for the rehearsal room. Sometimes if band members didn't cover their, their portion of the rent, I, I the money would come through me. The production was all paid for through me. The recording costs were all paid through, you know. When we did our first tours, unsigned, for getting $100 a show and send, sell $100 in merch, you know, all the, the difference of cash was a credit card that I swiped, you know. So for me, it was like, I got to like see this through and try to get this signed so I can take the advance money and pay it back. And so, you know, it was push, 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 push. And in general, we were a pretty good team, but there was always a rotating version of, of somebody causing drama or not feeling like, like basically if everyone's trying to push forward, they're becoming a speed bump and slowing it down, which is, that's typical for a band. But for me, I was just getting increasingly frustrated because it was just like, you know, this is, this was my baby and I was financially responsible for all the cash. And if it failed and just became like a glorified local band or people just started, just, you know, decided to not be that committed to it, you know, because it's, it's easy. It's like honeymoon period. You know, it's like meeting a girl. It's easy to say, you know, everything's great in the first few months until real life kicks in. And, you know, as, as I saw real life kicking in, I could see people's focus weakening here and there and, and becoming distracting and frustrating. So I was just like, got to get this thing signed, got to get it signed, you know, try to cover ourselves, you know. So we got signed to Warner Brothers in 2011, a year later after the first conversation. And at that point, it, everyone... Like, you know, we hit this peak. So frustrations that I had were kind of like, all right, well, now that we're signed and, it, and it's not just still this intangible thing and we have the manager, the lawyer, the, the agent, the label, and it's a big label and all this stuff going on, all this kind of bullshit that everyone kind of keeps creating has got to subside. Like, you know, and, and at first it did a little bit, but then it's like, typical stuff starts coming back and we get to the studio with Kevin Churko in April 2012 and we're still kind of in this like good vibe again because it's all it's all hope there's it's everything's hopeful we do the album during that album process there was a lot of stress because the head of A&R didn't like us and he almost stopped us from recording and shelf almost shelved us but luckily our manager had a good relationship with the label and with him and was able to kind of push it through for us so there's a lot of tension even though there's a lot of fun and there was a lot of, you know, hope again, working with Kevin. There was still a lot of tension and a lot of kind of BS. And it kind of came out here and there. And so around that time, a little bit before that, I basically, you know, I, I put these benchmarks in my head. I was like, I have to see this through to these points. I need to try to get this signed. Once it's signed, I got to try to get the album finished and do the best that we can. Once that's done, 
we got to tour on the album and try to just pound the pavement and and do as much as we can. And after those, you know, three major benchmarks are reached, if I don't feel like the band is doing as well as it should be, considering where it started and my investment in it, then then I'll probably just be done. I was just like, because, you know, after it coming out on like a scale of one to 10, we came out at a 10. In, in LA and we were like the band everyone was talking about and there's just everyone was just wondering how we came out of nowhere and we're doing the things that we were doing and how it was funded and how it was prepared and that you know and then just to watch it slowly kind of sink and settle like I'd say it like this it's like come out the gate at 100 miles an hour most bands are going 10 miles an hour. Slowly over time, it starts slowing down. Even though there's positive things happening, I can see people's work ethic, their focus, their attitude, just everything in general slowing down. So even though now we're down to 70 miles an hour, it's still more than what most bands have, but it's less than what we had when we started. And it just kind of kept being that to me. And I just got more and more increasingly frustrated. So when we got to the summer of 20. 14. I mean, I officially was done and like legally quitting. Well, that's not even true. We had the meeting about me le- about me quitting with our lawyer September 2014. Um, but the paperwork wasn't really signed till like I want to say six months later because they argued about it so much. But my last show with them was at Dirt Fest in Michigan. Yeah, in the middle of the Seven Dust tour. But um, during that tour, everything just kind of came to a head. Like I got tired of sucking up the negative energy from everybody, so I started spitting it back out. And I'll admit, you know, that's not the healthiest thing to do. But it's kind of like you know reason with people trying to be their friend trying to get them to understand that their perception of what's going on is not correct that the forecast of where this band's headed isn't correct and it and all that stuff i you know i just basically started to lose it and started getting in arguments with them and so coincidentally my uncle was uh in hospice so i actually left the tour to go to pittsburgh and be with my family but when i talked to management i was like yeah i'm not going back to the tour like you know funerals next week by the time this is all done there's only a handful of dates left so i'll just see them in la and um got back to la and then had conversations with management and through those conversations i basically was like yeah i'm done i i, I mean there's there's weeks of me and our, our manager talking about stuff and you know i explained to him what i'm kind of saying now which is just like i didn't put all this in here you know all this investment of, of time and energy and intent and cash too to be mediocre so the fact that like i said we came out the gate at one level and now we're at this level and then you know we're talking about upcoming tours that were offered for the for the winter of 2014 and there was like really no offers and i was like how is it possible that a year ago we were on tour with five finger death punch and now no larger band cares to take us out on tour i was like obviously we're not killing it we're not doing we're, we're not performing well enough we're not interacting with the fans well enough we're not working social media well enough we're not doing radio well enough like everything you know it's kind of like a, a car that's breaking down with a nice paint job like it it looks if you look at it it looks like everything's firing all still but once you get in the car, you hear how bad the motor runs, you find out that the car is not as good a shape as you think. And that's just kind of what was going on. And, uh, and I was just like, this is ridiculous. I was like, you know, if we were first to four on Five Finger in the fall of 2013, and here we are approaching fall, winter of 2014, and literally nobody of a larger size band is, is interested in taking us out. I was like, that's a problem. Because it's like after Five Finger, we did a headline run. Star Set was the opener, and that was their first tour. And then we did a tour with Red the beginning of 2014. And then we did another headline run, and the, you know, and the headline numbers weren't that great considering all the Octane play and all the touring that we've been doing from 2011 up to 20 
14. And so we got the Seven Dust offer, and I was like, that's great. I love Seven Dust. But, you know, unfortunately, that tour even, it didn't draw as much as we thought it would. You know, Seven Dust is a great band, but, you know, on average, those shows probably had three or 400 people. And we were thinking they'd be like 800 to 1,000 people at every show. So it's just like, I'm at this point where I'm like, all the proof is here. Like, all the, the data of everything that I've been feeling, here is all the data proving that we're not killing it. We're not doing as well as we should be, you know. And then to me, two other examples of bands, nothing more in Star Set had launched and they were killing us. They were getting better tours, getting more radio and um, getting more momentum. And they both had launched after we did. And, and by launch on that way, I mean, once we hit radio and were like launched that way, you know, with a label, they were slamming us. So at that point, I was just like, I don't want to be, you know, it, like basically it, it, it went from being my band and my, you know, and, and my team to being their band, their team. And I'm the dude that isn't on the same page with them because unfortunately, you know, entitlement and ego just came to play. You know, they told me you don't appreciate, you know, these opportunities like I appreciate them, but I'm telling you that they're not growing and they're not getting better. You know, it's better. Yeah, I know there's 100 bands that wish to be on this tour with this band. But if you're comparing time and effort for how much time and effort went in. This is not that great of an opportunity. It's not a real building point, and they just didn't want to hear it. And uh, that's that's essentially uh, why I was just like, oh, I'm whatever. You know, they want if they if they want this version of the band that's going to be like a, a, a shadow of what it's supposed to be, then you know, I'm not the singer. I get it. I'm not the focal point, and so they can have it. We'll come up some deal. I was like, you know, I'm not going to try to start another Gemini Syndrome with a different singer. The whole idea of it was one shot make it work, not convolute it and go through tons of different lineups and tons of a bunch of BS. So I was like, you know what, fine. If they want this version of it, they can have it. We'll figure out the details legally. And the reason why I never said anything was because, I mean, it's kind of the same reason why I didn't like draw attention to myself when I was in the band. Because for me, it wasn't, you know, it's not about me. It's not about any one person specifically. It's about the idea and what it represents and what it can mean to people. You know, the the name, the, the kind of mythology created behind it, the, um, the family that it used to be, and the music. You know, that's what was important to me, not taking selfies and saying, look how important I am, how important I am. That's why most people don't even know that I started the band and I was responsible for all that because when it happened, I wasn't trying to make it about me like that. You know, I, I guess an easy example is like, everyone knows that Zoltan started Five Finger. Nothing against Zoltan. I'm not trying to dog him for anything. I'm just saying that it's always since day one been very clear that that was Zoltan's baby. He did the graphic design. He wrote the songs. He knew everyone. And he runs the show, you know. And with Gemini Syndrome, um, I... I didn't want to be like that. And like again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Zoltan or that doing that. It's just for me as my personality and for I guess the feel of what the band was, I thought the the whole was more important than than the, the hand was more important than the finger. And if anyone ever had to pick out a finger, then that finger should be the front person, the singer. So so I always had that that thought process. So then when I left, part of my agreement with management was that I would still take it be on the sideline like i would just let them do their thing and not talk about anything and basically what i just had to do is be a doormat because they were upset with me people are asking why i'm not on tour so everyone starts running their mouth about me and i'm not saying anything because i don't a i don't want the drama and b i had to make them still look like a unit and let it be them against me so that right. the, the fans that they had would still 
follow the band. You know, all of a sudden this idea of, of how our story of how it was created and the vibe that that projected wouldn't get tarnished. Right. And so I just sucked it up and let my name get run through the dirt. And then finally after, when the deal was signed legally, then I just made a statement about it. And even then, like, you know, you got your people that want to start a bunch of crap and everything so that's why even up to this day i've just in general avoided even talking about it it's only recently i i guess the the big part of it is recent just because of this whole covid thing i've had enough time to be at home and not be like in the work band grind you know because like i still do a lot for september morning and i pretty much run this band with emily but since i don't have any tours coming up we got new songs we're working on but we don't have to have them released right away like everything everything's slowed down so I just kind of had more time and was like, you know what? Let me go through all these old hard drives, reorganize it, make sure I have everything. And then, you know what? Screw it. Me taking a back seat and, and letting it be all about them. And I'm just the odd man out that I'm the, I'm the, the Benedict Arnold in the public eye you know that i'm the turncoat you know like i'm just gonna put all this out there and people can realize what the truth is you know because at this point it's been 10 years since the first show it's been five and a half years since i left the band if i if i haven't said anything related to gemini syndrome even referring to something someone would either respond to me or message me something shitty or i'd find out from a friend who was in one of the center groups that someone screen captured what i said posted it and then there's just a huge threat of them talking shit about me. Like, I have no right to say anything about anything. It's like, I'm not even saying anything, anything bad. I'm just referring to something. Or because I said the Gemini Center name or something. And I'm just like, God, people are so retarded. Like, I didn't do anything to anyone. I was just trying to, like, not have a nervous breakdown. Right, <laughs> you know? right. I mean, I do know that that, that first tour that the band did after you had left i had asked because you know the first time or the second time i saw you guys when you guys played at dingbats in clifton new jersey you were at the merch table and so you and i struck up a conversation and then had become facebook friends and so when you weren't on that tour i asked the girl at the merch i was like where's rich and she didn't at that point uh, I'm not saying that, you know, I don't know anything about the anything else, but you know, she didn't talk shit or anything. She just gave a very canned, very lawyer sounding response about not being able to comment on why you weren't there. Well, what's funny to me is that like that merch girl is someone that doesn't even personally know me. So I've seen all the different people working for the band over the years. And literally, I just think it's funny how of you know not up to me or i don't know what to say it's fine but even being so prepared in the statement like what you're saying is just it's funny because it's, it makes it sound as if like they're actually directly involved when they have nothing to do with it and the thing is, is like you know you're so your experience is pretty neutral in that but thing is, is like but i know that it wasn't in general right right right, right. The thing is like i've had plenty of people this is the thing I'm not looking for information. I'm not going, hey, what did they say? I don't, I don't, like, I, I'm not looking for drama. It's, it's a waste of time. But other people that, I'm not even going to say they're loyal to me because they're still friends with them, but people that respect me enough and they went to shows and would hear things that were being said or see things being done, they'd be like, hey, you know, I don't really know what's going on. And I went to the show and I know it's not really in my business, but I just thought that you should know that blah, 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 blah. And right, I was right. like, you know, thanks for telling me. I'm not going to do anything about it. That's their thing. If they want to be petty and and just prove my point, you know, if they basically want to prove me right by acting the way they're going to act, then what? whatever. I, I can't control it. I couldn't control watching it ramp up while I was there. I mean, because literally I got told in a parking lot by Brian that the only thing that I ever did was come up with a cool band name. <laughs> wow. Literally. That was the sentence. He's like, I don't know who you think you are, blah, 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 this and this and this. The only thing you've ever really done is the only thing you contribute to this band is you made a cool band name. 
that's it. We're wow. we're everything. Like we're the real talent. And I was just like, you know, that was like a final nail in the coffin. When that conversation happened, that was probably about a month before I officially left or less. And I was just like, man, if all of you, if your attitudes are that much, you know, of of not appreciating anything that I've done or what I'm trying to get through to them about, you know, it's like me saying, hey, the ship is sinking. I swear, the ship is sinking. No, it's not. We're still sailing fine. No, the ship is sinking. It's taking on water. Maybe it's a gallon a day, but it's still sinking and no one wants to listen. You know, that's kind of where it went. So I, I saw Mike Salerno in Chattanooga in like 2016, I think. And I had dinner with him and he's honestly the only one I'm actually... I'll say this way. I don't talk to any of them in general, but the only person that I will and have had a, a civil conversation with is Mike. I mean, he admitted to me that when I first left and being on tour that it was rough and he, and he was kind of frustrated even at that point was just like, you didn't have to stand there and answer all the questions from people while you weren't there. You know, I was like, I understand that. But same time, though, I know some of the stuff you guys were saying and or how you were handling some of it. I mean, that was a clue, but whatever. It doesn't matter at this point. And he's not in the band anymore either. No, no. He left like, I don't know, like eight months after I did. Because the thing is, is like when I was getting everything legally settled with them, uh, here's an example. Well, I can't get too far into it because it's legally, but but basically they were supposed to give me all the extra production lights, the cables and all that stuff. So I said I would, you know, to coordinate getting it, I'd coordinate with Mike. And they had to give me the trailer. So I coordinated with Mike to do it. And I probably met up with him two or three times in LA to get the trailer, get the lights, get some stuff, some cases. And, you know, he told me, and I was in September morning at this time with rehearsing and emily was actually around for the conversations and he said he was he was frustrated he was just like i mean literally what he said was something like i do what i do you do what you do now i have to do what you did and i don't fully even know how you did what you did and you know he's a hard worker and he's a really decent guy so he was trying his hardest to make it work but he was just like but they you know but they just keep making it harder they just keep throwing more, more bullshit on me and i he's like i don't think i ever want to do this anymore and i was like well you know you know why i left you know and you know why the only person i'm talking to is you see one I thing like, i'm good luck i mean you know one thing i'm curious about and i don't want to go too hard on on Gemini syndrome because we still have all of the September morning stuff to get to. But yeah, one yeah, one yeah. thing that I'm I'm curious about just and you may or may not have input on this. You know, you mentioned when you met Aaron that Aaron used to play guitar in OTEP. All of the band changes that have happened in Gemini syndrome. Is there a reason that he has never played guitar in Gemini syndrome? He played guitar. I'm trying to remember. I, okay, I'd have to go through the video because I, I swear I, I want to say there might have been one show that he might have. But I think I think I'm hallucinating. I think after. I left and it was just Mike. Yeah, that's what it was. I saw a video. When I when I left and it was just Mike, they didn't get another guitar player right away, I don't think. He was playing guitar for a few songs, but it completely just killed the entire dynamic of the band. Oh, okay. Like like him standing there like as a front man playing guitar, it doesn't work. I can't really explain how and why. I just know that it did. And right. we, we had we had thought about it in the past about maybe having him play guitar in some songs that have a third guitar because there sometimes were a lot of guitar layers. But even with management, we talked about it. We were just like, this doesn't work with him being glued to a microphone. He has to be mobile. He has to be that type of front man. And that and I think that's pretty much what they've stuck to. Like they experimented with that one tour and realized it just didn't look good or feel right. Okay. Now, sort of getting into, you know, I'm not sure exactly how it all lines up, but around the same time that you left Gemini Syndrome, you joined September Morning. How, how did joining September Morning come about? There's a huge overlap. And I know that the, the conspiracy theory people of Gemini Syndrome fans want to believe that I left Gemini Syndrome for September Morning. And that's not what happened at all. What happened was I met Emily in like 2012, actually while we were recording Lux in Vegas, 
uh, we had friends in common, and we just started talking on my or on my on Facebook, and she she showed me some stuff with the band. I thought it was pretty interesting. And at that time, my whole thing was like strength in numbers. Like my band's doing what it's doing, but I was always looking around at other bands and and seeing like, hey, how can I help this other band? Because for me, it was like, yeah, Gemini Storm is going to put on the show that it's going to put on, but I would l rather have three or four bands that I believe in all on the same show and make it a really impactful thing than just randoms. And so I was always looking out for other LA bands to kind of align with and maybe Big Brother. Because like, you know, we did that with Eva Love and Stitched Up Heart. We took them on their first tour ever in 2011. And not many people knew who those bands were at the time, but we were friends and I, I thought that it was worth you know giving them a shot to get to get out there and start doing stuff with us so basically i started uh kind of just like helping like big brothering september morning in 2012 and that's kind of what it was it was like 2012 2013 2014 but that's what i was doing when i was intending to leave gemini syndrome i knew that emily she was signed to virgin records she had a, a big manager big agent she was auditioning musicians and i thought that she had the band all together and that the machine was about to go into play you know label agent manager all going to do their thing so i was kind of like well i just need a job and it needs to be related to something i'm good at so i talked to her and i was just like i guess since you're gonna have the band and all this other stuff and i've kind of helped guide you here i guess i'll just tour manage you guys or something you know like i that's basically what i thought was that it when i got officially separated from gemini syndrome her stuff would be ready to roll and i would just be, be a position player and help out again you know it wasn't about me i just wanted to do something that i believed in i, I wanted to promote something and, and help work with something that i thought had the right motivations for why they were trying to do it but um you know a month or two goes by after i left that seven dust tour her, she's talking with her manager they hadn't really settled on any musicians he found out that i was officially leaving gemini syndrome and he said to her well he built one band asked me if he wants to do this. And so she asked me, and I was like, I mean, I wasn't really intending to be in the band, but I, sure, you know, like, I don't have anything else going on, and this, you know, this is going to be kind of the same template of what I did before, and that's that's essentially how I officially was in the band. And that was, like, I accepted that, you know, like, my meeting with Gemini Syndrome and the lawyer was, like, September 2011, or 2014, and, like, a week after that is when she asked me, because that's when she had told her manager that I'd had the meeting, and that I was officially 100% done. Yeah, so that that's that's how I officially got involved, and then it's pretty much been me and her making it work since then. Alrighty, and September Morning is is really more than just a band. It appears to be a full fledged multimedia project with comics. There was a web series proposed at one point, and it seems like the music is a vehicle for telling this overall story. Uh, how does this approach impact the songwriting compared to a more traditional band? It's tricky, I mean, because there's the music and there's like, you know, the lyrics and the themes. You know, I don't write the lyrics and, and all that. So, so this is my interpretation of how Emily does it, which is, you know, she looks at it like every song is like a different soul or perspective in, in the overall story. Because, like, you know, all that's out right now is the first four comic issues, which is one graphic novel. But, you know, she and Mark Silvestri have, you know, an entire story Bible of everything. So it's like, I'll say it this way, it's like The Hobbit is out and that's the only thing that everyone knows but the entire lord of the rings trilogy is written somewhere you know so and i will say is unfortunately we haven't had like the full funding or machine behind us we've pretty much been diy the entire time even being signed to samarian i was the one doing a majority of the work i mean samarian did record a video and do graph design and coordinate a few things but it was mainly me and emily in the trenches doing stuff. I mean, essentially, if you didn't know that we were signed to Sumerian, it didn't look like we were signed to Sumerian. <laughs> like, that's just how it was. And no offense to them, they're all great people, but it's just, 
the, the, the problem is, is that for things to work right for a band, there's got to be a perfect connection between the booking agent, the manager, and the label, and the band. And if that perfect connection does not exist, and it's only like there's like one loose chain, it, it all crumbles. And um, so that's what I'm saying. It's not Marion's fault. It's just a combination of details in the entire story that equaled us being left hanging out to dry, kind of. So that's what I'm saying. Is that like even though there's so many layers to what we've got going on and what we want to do, we haven't been able to execute it because we haven't had that full machine behind us. So Emily and I have decided more to just like kind of do everything at our pace now and not worry about pleasing the machine. So when it comes to songwriting, it's a tricky situation because in Gemini Syndrome, I wrote a majority of the music by myself. It was just whatever I was feeling and doing and I bring it to everyone and they'd be like, that's cool. And then move forward from there. With this situation, Emily had been working with Sahaj Tikatin from Raw, and they were essentially the musical foundation of the project. And I, again, I was coming in after the fact, and so I, you know, again, I'm not going to make it about me. It's it's about the project. So I just try to be a position player and do what what it was. Over time, I've written more with the band, but Sahaj has always been involved. So it's 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 tricky because it's, you know I believe in the project and I obviously work 110% in it, but it's still not completely my baby. So so I can't just go do whatever I want to do. I have to look at all, all the pieces of who's involved for creating and then just make sure that I play my role in it. I guess that makes sense. All right. And yeah, you just mentioned, actually, I, and I had a question about this anyway, you just mentioned uh, the involvement of Sahaj. He's had a long established relationship with the band. He's co-written and he's been involved in the production side of, of all the music. Can you tell me a bit more about the relationship and what he brings to the table that a, another producer might not? The thing about Sahaj is, especially because he works with Emily directly, the fact that he's a really great vocalist and songwriter, that's what the connection is. You know, because a lot of producers, I mean, there's a couple of different types of producers, and I'm generalizing, but, you know, there's the engineer producer, a guy that's never played an instrument his entire life, but has a really good ear and can maybe twiddle around on something. And he knows his way around the computer and, and engineering. And then you've got the guy that used to be in a band, and that's a producer. And, and, and But very rarely have I seen or worked with a producer that was like so, so above average as a vocalist. And so I think that that's like the, the wild card with Sahaj is that the way he looks at what he's writing, you know, it, it's got his voice with it. It's not just a according to engineering or according to riffing out you know it's 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 still coming from like a top line a vocalist spot like that's i think the shining star on it <laughs> okay and going back to a bit of you know because the the band has all of the 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 comics and all that do you guys ever get any unique opportunities for for shows like at comic cons and things like that yeah pretty often in the past played ac boardwalk con in atlantic city comic palooza in houston played a small like bakersfield collectors con in bakersfield california we've done anime midwest two years in chicago and also did MechaCon in new orleans and then we actually got offered to do Arctic Comic Con in Anchorage. And we were supposed to do that in April, because, but because of all the shutdown, it got moved to Halloween. But I'm not even sure if that's going to happen. So, you know, we definitely want to start doing more of those conventions. But there's just the trick is, is like not all the, you know, there's tons of Comic Cons across the United States and the world, but they all don't do shows. And even if they do, it's a little bit different system of, of, of the types of music and bands that they have. Having a band that legitimately tours, you know, with radio and regular just music bands, that doesn't happen very often that those bands do cons. And the bands that are doing the cons don't really you know work in that stream so we're kind of stuck in between but we're 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 trying to you know do more of it now you guys most recently released the band's second ep and third overall release called volume three for listeners that might not be familiar with the band can you tell me what they can expect from that ep 
Volume 3, honestly, was a big experiment. We were trying to see how we could kind of progress the sound of the band without doing it, I guess, what was expected of us. Honestly, this that EP is a little bit different because Sahaj's involvement with it was a little bit minimal. Unholy was the first song that we wrote in that batch of stuff, and Sahaj wrote that with us. But like the riff and, and the guitar work was completely reworked when I went and worked with Nick Scott. And then the other tracks, Madness, Overdose, and uh, Hiding from Heaven, again, they were all just experiments. We just were kind of like, people expect this kind of song out of the band, but we're into so much other stuff. Why don't we try to, you know, show some some more layers to what we're what we're doing? And honestly, Empire and Glass Animals aren't on that EP, but they, they should be. The the reason why they're not is because Sumerian bought those songs off of us and then we did the EP by ourse- EP by ourselves. So if we would have never sold the songs to Sumerian, then we would have we would have put them on the EP because they, they are part of that entire experimental branch and world of, of that. Okay. And why did you guys opt with i mean even with those songs it still would have been sort of short ep level why did you guys opt to go ep on that uh instead of a full length it's a couple of reasons one the industry as a whole is just kind of like everything's singles single singles you know like unfortunately everyone's attention span is is different today so you can put out an entire album but a month later everyone's going to want some more music whereas like if you put out smaller batches of songs you keep people more engaged. You've got more stuff because the thing is, is like being creative isn't hard, but being creative and good is, you know. So, so writing, you can write m- music all day long, but writing songs that you know like make the cut is difficult, and to get them recorded starts to get expensive. So, it's easier to do things in batches and get the songs out to the people. Hopefully, make some money back, put that, roll it over into making new songs, you know, instead of like putting all into doing it all at once. So, part of it is just the the listeners the I guess timeline of how they want to consume music and part of it for us was just how many songs we believed in you know we had a bunch of other songs we wrote but we were like eh. you know we experimented a lot we we're just like these aren't there's not enough here there's not enough that we're happy with for an album but we don't want to make people keep waiting and so that's what we did that way alrighty and you mentioned the music industry and I I always ask anybody that's ever on this show you know how do you feel about where the music industry is right now where, where like you said it's it's about singles and and people don't really buy music anymore it's all about the spotify and the streaming and people you know it seems to be that a lot of people think well what do you need to buy music for bands make their money at shows anyway so you know, what do you need to buy the music for like how do you feel about that i think the thing that most people are, are missing is the, the idea that just because you see a standard like a, a low bar doesn't mean that you have to just live by it. For example, 10 years ago, when streaming wasn't really a thing yet, but it was mainly digital, when I started Gemini Syndrome, people would always talk about how people aren't buying physical that much anymore. Just, you know, they're just going to iTunes and, or Amazon and getting their music to download it. So why waste the money on printing CDs? It's cheaper to just print out like promo cards or, or just tell people to go to iTunes or something. And I was just kind of like, just because of technology and society evolving a certain way, you know, and unfortunately devaluing what you're doing just because that's kind of what they're doing doesn't mean that you you should just placate the lowest common denominator and and then kind of half-ass your work you know it's always better to strive for the most you know that you can do and really show how much you believe in it and care about it and make it something that matters so if you print out a thousand cds 
when normally you print out 5,000. Okay, cool. So you made a smart decision. You printed out less. But the point is that you still printed them. And maybe you get pleasantly surprised that you sell out of them really fast. You have to order more because people actually love your band so much they want the physical. You know, because that's my whole thing is kind of like uh, the idea of, you know, I don't want someone to like my band. I want them to love it. And to make someone fall in love with it, you got to have all these things. It can't just be about like, yeah, we're cool. You like our song, right? And we're pretty tight live. You want to hang out with me, right? Like, you want to hang out because I'm cool. It's like, <laughs> You follow me on social media. It's like, no, get over yourself. Like, it, like again, it should be not the whole about what the experience is. And, I, and that's what I'm saying. So I think that bands and industry people have lost sight of that. And so now it's like a chicken or the egg. You know, fans take the, digest things a certain way. Industry reacts to that. When it reacts, it devalues it some more. Fans react to that. And it just keeps funneling down, you know. And I just think that people just need to look at the fundamentals. Like, stop chasing literal details and literal trends and literal things that are happening. But make educated decisions and look at the data and kind of go like okay i know this is what's going on on the surface but at the end of the day people still need this or want this and so how can we figure out a way to make them remember that they want it this way but not you know financially screw ourselves or you know make it too convoluted and complicated you know and i guess the way i'd say it too is um how can you how can an artist or when working with an artist, expect, you know, the public or the fans to care about the band and the music and the story of what it's all about. How can you expect this certain high level of, of commitment physically and monetarily when you're not even showing it? <laughs> you know, you're only dipping half your foot in the water because everyone keeps telling you it's cold. <laughs> Like, <laughs> and I, 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 what I think is that most bands and industry people should just strive to like make an educated decision about what's literally happening in the industry, but still not lose sight of fundamental things that relate no matter what. And remember that with trends, things go up and down, turn, they go in circles and things that like, because things are kind of leading to the left, it's going to eventually go back to the right. And whoever's ahead of the curve when it starts going back to the right is going to usually su succeed and get more out of it. Everything in life, there's no reinventing the wheel. Everything's kind of is what it is. It's just about seeing how the, the pace changes and flows and not losing sight of, of the fundamentals and adapting to the literal things that are changing. Now, the only other thing typically I would ask about fe festivals versus, you know, concerts, but there isn't any of that right now. Everything is, is on hold. So the only other thing that I've got to ask you is you know what's next for you right now there's like i said there's no concerts there's no touring it seems like a good you know like you were saying before that with, with the downtime you've been jumping into your archive and putting a lot of the old gemini syndrome videos and stuff up on youtube are you guys for for september morning are you guys doing any writing right now like what's next okay, yeah. for you yeah so for first the september morning thing's a little more complicated so I'll real quick refer to the, the first thing, the Gemini syndrome thing. The, the reason, you know, beyond the fact that it's been 10 years since the first year, like an anniversary of 10 years and five and a half years since I left, the other thing I realized, and I guess this is a, almost like a, a weird midlife crisis, but I just said to myself, I can still tell there's people that love that era of the band. I'm not going to say love the band, but love that era, because I know a lot of people have kind of let go. Like they think some of this new stuff is fine or whatever, but they just, they don't, they like it, but they're not in love with it. And so I was kind of like, even some of the stuff that's not that exciting, I still have it. Even the shows where there's five people watching, if you were one of the five people that was at that show and you found out there's video of it, that's your memory. That's what, Maybe that was your introduction to us. And that's what made you fall in love with the band. So I just kind of realized like, man, if I got hit by a car tomorrow, I don't think any of this would ever be seen. Even though it's here, I don't think anyone would know what to do with it or would, would even spend the time uploading it. So so for me, having this time right now to do that has been about me trying to, I guess, give back to everyone and kind of go like, you know, it sucks that five and a half years later, I'm not in that band and that it didn't live up to the potential of what it should have been. But this is what I can give you is all the stuff that you missed. Stuff that no one's ever 
never seen or stuff that only a few people have seen or stuff that was taken down once we got signed, you know, because it didn't fit into the template of what they wanted. But I've just realized that that's the stuff that everyone gravitates to. And, you know, they should they should be able to enjoy it and I guess re-fall in love with what why they originally did like love and like the band before. So that's why I'm doing that. As far as September Morning stuff, we're sludging through the process of finishing an album. In between tours last year, Emily and I would go right with Sahaj and we had about 11 tracks. It's like 10 originals, one cover. We went to Bob Marlette's studio in Woodland Hills in October and Kyle tracked drums for all the songs. And then Nick Scott started working on like post-production and kind of soundtracking extra little elements into the songs. So we had all of that pretty much done by January and then we did a tour in February and we were supposed to start hearing mixes and then everything shut down. So then we had to kind of like look around and kind of go, well, obviously people don't have to be in front of each other to mix, but you know, we were working with Chris Lord Algae and he was in LA and he couldn't even go to a studio. So he couldn't mix anything. So then we were just kind of going, well, what, what can we do? And then once Chris was able to start mixing again, he was slammed with all like in the major pop artists and, and larger rock bands he had, that he was backlogged with. So we had Nick Scott start doing some mixes. Kind of where we're at right now is uh, we're just finishing off the last end of the recording process. And our intention is to get a new track out to everyone within the next, I, I, I'd hope to say next two months. Because to, to, to do a proper lead up and make sure that everything is being promoted properly and, and it's, it's all there, you usually need about like a 60 day lead up. So any day now we should be completely 100% on the on the on mix for that for one song and then kind of be able to start giving people more information and something to look forward to. And then once that first song gets out, we'll probably be doing it like that, like probably every couple months, releasing a new, a new track. And then when we get towards the tail end of it, put it back together and then put the last few tracks with it. It's like the, it's like the reverse of a greatest hits. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's funny is it is it i over the years you hear about about bands uh, saying like oh because the model's changing we're gonna we're just gonna you know do it this way release singles and then eventually we'll compile it all onto an album and i feel like every time that i've heard a band say they were gonna do that it never wound up quite working out that way i'm trying to think how to explain it like there's different models and expectations of things when when you're dealing directly Let's say, let's, say, let's say this way. If you're playing it by the, the, I guess, the old school version where you've got a certain type of manager, certain type of label, certain type of agent, and you're going to go with radio and pay a lot of money for campaigns, then you have to look at how you release the music a certain way because that's the model. That's what it is. If you're not expecting, like basically, if you're not trying to please that machine, but you're more trying to please your fan base, then, well, please your fan base, but at the same time, they'll be consistent, then doing it a different way, and I'm not saying it's a single every month or whatever, I'm just saying, but doing it a different way is what can make more sense. Because like I said, we could release all 11 tracks next month and everyone be into it, and then what? Right, we right. Tour. We can't do anything, and it costs a lot of money to record another batch of songs. Yep. You know, so it makes more sense to just be uh, consistent. I mean, because believe me, I'd love to put out 10 songs every month <laughs> that I was 100% happy with and got everyone excited, you know, like, but no no band can operate like that, you know? So for us, it's, it's looking at it's looking at what we're working with and who we're working with and still keeping in mind as much as possible the fans and, you know, trying to keep them engaged and, and make them just feel like they're still a part of what's going on, you know? We, we do, to do stuff often enough that they're excited about it, but not so much that they take it for granted and kind of go, oh, there's more of that. Oh, I'll check that out later. Just trying to keep things very consistent. And as, as far as regrouping it all together at the end, I mean, honestly, I had that idea a couple of years ago. And it's, it's funny because no one at the time was talking like that. And so I hear, you know, people all 
mentioning it now, and I, I told that to Sumerian two and a half years ago, and they told me, well, how's that work with radio? And I was like, it doesn't. I, I kind of don't care. <laughs> like, you know, like I appreciate everyone I've ever done anything with radio, but at the end of the day is it costs so much money to deal with radio, and at the end of the day, it's not like a real investment. It's not like you can make an educated decision and invest your money a certain way and get a return. It's spend a lot of money, and at the end of the day, you still don't know if people are going to like it. Right. Well, what's funny is the the example that I think of with that is that there was this band called We Are the Fallen, and it was all former members of Evanescence. Yeah, I know who they are. Yeah, yeah, and then they had got they had gotten a girl from American Idol to be their their front person, and they had I remember when they first came out, they were like, yeah, that's how we're going to do it, and then they got signed. They're like, ah, oh, never mind. Here's an album. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but see, I can't make a comment on them because I don't know their situation personally. All I can say is that there's so many parts to the puzzle, even with summing it up as band, label, manager, agent, you know, like even saying that, like there are so many different dynamics, you know, it's, it's like advanced astrophysics when it comes to all the variables and personalities and details in a band situation. So people having perceptions of how they want to do things and then not doing it exactly the same way, all it takes is for a few things to kind of level the entire business model that they had and kind of go, well, let's just make the most out of it because for whatever reason, we're not going to do it the way we wanted and there's no chance we could. And so let's just make the most of it. Right, right. And sometimes that's just literally what it is, you know. There's there's no there's no like grand conspiracy or ball dropping. It's just kind of that's how cookie crumbled, unfortunately, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that it just comes down in in that case. You you've got the thing is with with social media, you have that direct communication with the fans, and so there's a, and and so there's a lot more just record. Like I, I feel like back in the day, like you know, a band could have had that idea and never told anyone, and so never no one would have ever known that they did things they didn't follow the plan but when you're putting everything out there and then it's like well you said that and you know it's there's just a more more of a record of everything these days yeah yeah. what it comes down to i mean and that's another thing is like you know i'm talking about physical details and and parts of the equation the other part that's intangible is just people's perception and attitudes and ideas i mean sometimes unfortunately you know people get ahead of themselves and say something they don't completely understand or mean or hasn't been discussed so unfortunately, sometimes, and I'm not saying that about them, I don't know their situation, but I'm just saying it's human nature. You put your foot in your mouth, <laughs> you know, and you didn't have any bad intentions behind it, but it's kind of confusing. And then you find out like, oh man, I didn't really know what I was talking about when I said that. I heard somebody else talking about it and I thought it was a good idea. And I thought I understood what was going, that, that I thought I understood what it meant. And I thought that it was good for us. But since I said that, and now everyone else I'm working with goes, why'd you say that? And they explain to me what, why they can't do it that way. Then it's like, oh, whoops. <laughs> I mean, that's just, a, that's a, unfortunately, that's a typical thing that happens in bands. You know, somebody gets excited, and, but that's why you've got bands and that's why you have managers, <laughs> you know, and stuff like that, because it's the checks and balances of having an outside perspective to remind you that, you know, sometimes when you don't make sense <laughs> or that you don't really know what's what and that you should have those conversations internally first. Right, right, right. I think that's about all I've got for you. I just, I hope that number one, you're staying safe with all of the, the Corona crap. And I really hope that, that things start to subside soon so we can start to have concerts again and I can go and see you play live back at 
dingbats or wherever else it may be. I did see you guys when you came around earlier this year, but I just I just miss shows, man. Yeah, I mean, I'm 50-50 right now. Like, I miss traveling. I miss seeing people. I miss playing music. But I will admittedly say that in the past six months to a year, I've kind of gotten worn out. I mean, you know, I guess anyone that knows me from being on tour or doing band stuff, I kind of operate like at 200% and do a lot. And uh, a lot of time people are kind of like, how do you do that much? But I just, for me, it's, you know, things have to get done and I want to do my hardest to try to, you know, get things over the hump. But in the past six months to a year, I've kind of gotten like just burnt out a little bit. It's not like burnt out, like I don't want to do music or anything. It's just literally me going, the rate that I'm working, I don't think I can maintain it. So I need to figure out a different way to make this work and rethink certain things. And so having all this happen has been like a weird blessing in disguise because it forced me to, to chill, you know, to not be glued to email, be worried every second about what's being posted on social media and upcoming tour dates and then like I just literally like oh well I can't go on tour so everything that related to that I'll have a conversation with my booking agent here and there but other than that everything slowed down so th- this has been actually a good time for me to kind of like just it's like it's like I went on retreat I won't say vacation because it's not a vacation but I went on retreat and just like even even honestly even looking at all this old Gemini syndrome footage kind of reminding me what my my headspace was when it was all just like an infant stage of my career like just you know without all the the baggage of experience and touring and this and that like just literally going at that time the energy and the excitement of just creating and doing stuff and all that so all those things together it's actually been pretty good for me but yeah i do miss touring the, in the shows i don't i mean honestly from talking to my booking agent about stuff you know we're scheduling stuff for august and september and october but at the rate that things are kind of going i don't know if that stuff's even going to happen you know right right yeah i had i had, um, had tickets to take the kids to go see five finger death punch in like two weeks ago and yeah. that has been postponed to november we'll see if it actually happens yeah, you know, and I'm not even going to get into the debate because I, I have friends on both sides and I just see it all over Facebook and it just gives me a headache. You got the people that are taking it like super seriously as if like if you walk at your front door, it's the Black Plague. And then there's the other end, which is it's not that serious. Yeah, some people have died. It's another disease, but open everything back up and put it right back to where it should be like normal. And, you know, everything in life is somewhere in between. The only problem is that it's hard to make an educated decision because you're only as good as your facts. And unfortunately, nobody knows what, knows what the truth is. And I think that that's you know going to make it go in circles and unfortunately you know everyone's gonna be more safe than sorry and that's what's gonna put you know shows behind even further i will say though that uh i'm lucky and i appreciate it i was looking at a, a map of hamilton county where i live and it was showing reported cases and severity by zip code and uh, the zip code that i'm in is like the lowest of the entire county so i was like pray for me i'm in this weird middle ground where when it first came out i was like ah i don't know and like still went to like before everything got canceled, like I went to a show at Dingbats and then and then everything got canceled. And then I got a new job that I have to go be, that's considered essential that I still have to go to every day. Yeah. So I still leave the house five days a week, you know, so I, I'm on this weird like I see all these people on Facebook like, oh, I've been stuck in my house for three months. And it's like I can't relate to that because I've been going out every day. But at the same time, do I think that that like mass gatherings should be coming back yet? No, probably not. Yeah, well, that's, not, that's what I'm saying. That's the better safe and sorry version, because like I said, is like none of us know what the truth is. We only know what told us to us by the news. And even then, like I said, you go through Facebook and people post articles from official sources that all contradict each other and they're all 
supposed to be official and legitimate. You know, so at that point, all you can do is make a law of averages, you know, decision and be somewhere in the middle and just make educated decisions that, that aren't, you know, to the extreme. Don't get in a fight with somebody at the grocery store over something because they're not wearing a mask. But at the same time, they don't go cough on everybody, you know, like, like but we'll get through it eventually. Yeah. And Even then I don't and... play until next year. Yeah, yeah, like I guess I was, I was gonna say we'll get through it, and, and whenever we do, I, I can't wait to see you again. And thank yeah. you for being being on the show, and and like I said, I hope it's not too long. And if it has to be, it has to be. But I hope it's not too long until I get to see you face to face again. Oh, definitely. That's 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 the the highlight of touring is, is seeing you and other people on tour. That you know, that it's like my extended. Uh, it's like it's like a cell phone plan, my extended friends and family network. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's great.
And from the EP Volume 3, that was September Morning with the song Overdose. I want to thank Rich for being on the show once again. It was so great to hear all of the in-depth, behind-the-scenes information about how you know Gemini Syndrome came together, why he left Gemini Syndrome, how he wound up joining September Morning. Like, I really loved how deep this conversation got as far as you know all of the goings-on. That's why it ran a little long, but... I, I think it was fucking fantastic. I hope that you enjoyed it. You can follow September Morning on Facebook and Instagram at September Morning, and that is with a U, M O U R N I N G. And on Twitter, uh, they're also at September Morning, but the word September is missing most of the E's that would be in the word September. So it'd be S E P T M B R. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G and don't forget also that you can follow and subscribe to Rich's YouTube channel, just search his name, Rich Jeswick, I guess he doesn't I guess that YouTube has not granted him a custom URL, you have to be super fucking special to get that, but anyway search Rich on YouTube and and follow him on YouTube to see all of these videos that he's been posting from his archive uh, Gemini Syndrome stuff I was just looking at it, there's some other other concert footage on there, not Gemini Syndrome, and I'm sure that as he gets through it, uh, there'll be more and more stuff to see, so certainly check that out. Don't forget, you can also follow J Bunny's Music Hub on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, still a Patreon, still trying to, to sort out what to do with that. Don't forget that we're posting episodes on the Club Kayfabe CKCC radio site, in addition to Potomatic, uh, so this is going to be there. And, and speaking of that, I always speak to, and actually, well, before I get into that, before I forget, one of my social media plugs. Also, if you guys, obviously, all the time, I always tell you, if you believe in buying music like I do, please follow the Industry Embers on Facebook and Twitter at Industry Embers, and tweet or post your music purchases with the hashtag Buy Music B U Y, or it's Buy Music B Y E. Uh, now, as I was saying, CKCC Radio, um, next week, we, I've finally gotten through the backlog. This interview with Rich was the last one in my backlog. I don't have anything else pending. Um, and I'm having my wisdom teeth out next week, so I'm not going to be recording anything next weekend. So look for a, a classic episode to hit CKCC Radio next week. And uh, and in the weeks coming, until I get something new, I may have something later this month. I don't know yet. And I have a publicist that has been reaching out to me to schedule stuff. I told her after the backlog I'd get back to her, so backlog's over, I'm going to get back to her, we might have some stuff there. So keep an eye out, you know, new stuff, classic stuff. We've got a lot to go before everything's online, and, and I've always said I want everything online. We're working at it. Again, thank you to, to Chris O'Mealy from Club Kayfabe for asking me to be a part of this and, and putting all of my stuff up. I think that's all that I've got for you guys today. I'm going to leave you with another song from September Mornings Volume 3. It's their most recent single from the EP. This is Madness. Until next time, guys.